welcome to Inside the BACB, the official podcast of the Behavior Analyst Certification Board. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Inside the BACB. I'm Dr. Jim Carr, the organization's CEO, and I'm joined today by our Director of Ethics, Dr. Tyra Sellers. Hey there, everyone. So this is the first in a series of episodes that we'll publish this year on the new Ethics Code for Behavior Analysts. So we published this in December of 2020, uh, and it'll go into effect uh, January 2022. And our last episode, number 15, I think, uh, Tyra and I introduced the new code. Uh, we talked about the process we used to create it, uh, and we discussed its introduction section. In this episode, we're gonna comment on the ethics standards in section one, which is titled Responsibility as a Professional. We'll cover other sections uh, in episodes that we'll publish throughout the year. Yeah, that's right, Jim. This episode will really focus on reviewing each of the specific standards in section one, kind of with an eye towards pointing out what's been edited, what's new, what's significantly different. Um, as a reminder, folks can find more information on the BACB's website. Specifically, we've got the code document itself. We have the crosswalk that was created. There's a newsletter from December 2020. And we have that first podcast episode that you mentioned. That's right. So let's get started. Uh, so section one, again, the title is Responsibility as a Professional. The section includes 16 ethics standards and largely contains content from sections one and 10 of the Professional and Ethical Compliance Code for Behavior Analysts. So without further ado, let's begin. So here's how we're gonna do this. I'll read each of the 16 ethics standards and then Tyra will provide a brief commentary. So standard 1.01, being truthful. It states, behavior analysts are truthful and arrange the professional environment to promote truthful behavior in others. They do not create professional situations that result in others engaging in behavior that is fraudulent or illegal or that violates the code. They also provide truthful and accurate information to all required entities, for example, the BACB, licensure boards and funders, and individuals, for example, clients, stakeholders, supervisees, and trainees, and they correct instances of untruthful or inaccurate submissions as soon as they become aware of them. So this standard provides the overarching expectation that individuals behave in a truthful manner, which is obviously important, that they arrange environments to increase the likelihood that others will do the same, and also that they don't create conditions that sort of invite or set others up to engage in fraudulent behavior or other illegal behavior. It also sets the expectation that individuals are honest in the information that they provide to any relevant organization or individual. This standard, as well as 1.02 and 1.03 that we'll talk about in a minute, are sort of revisions to code 1.04 around integrity in the professional and ethical compliance code for behavior analysts. All right, well, speaking of 1.02, it is titled Conforming with Legal and Professional Requirements. The standard reads, behavior analysts follow the law and the requirements of their professional community, for example, the BACB or licensure boards. Pretty self-explanatory. Individuals are required to know about and comply with the requirements of the profession. So, for example, any requirements from relevant entities such as licensure boards, the BACB, or any other sort of context-specific requirement. That might include requirements from review boards, for example, or maybe funders. Right. So I think the, this standard could prompt professionals to do kind of a surveillance 
of what their current obligations are, uh, because I think practitioners today have more organizations in their life than the practitioners of yesterday. And so if you don't do a full scan of what your obligations are, there's a reasonable chance you'll miss something at some point. That's right, Jim. That's sort of a a general change in the new code altogether is uh, sort of a, a broader direction for individuals to kind of know what the requirements and expectations are, as opposed to telling them specifically follow requirements with regard to this one specific organization. Right. Yeah, good point. Okay, uh, the next standard is 1.03, accountability. And it reads, behavior analysts are accountable for their actions and professional services and follow through on work commitments. When errors occur or commitments cannot be met, behavior analysts take all appropriate actions to directly address them, first in the best interest of clients and then in the best interest of relevant parties. Basically, this standard directs individuals to do what they say they're going to do and to be responsible for any errors or instances where they just can't meet a commitment. Yeah, you got it. The main requirements are similar to those that are in the current professional and ethical compliance code for behavior analysts with sort of some clarification around what to do when one finds an error has been made uh, or sort of that we can't follow through with some commitment that we've made. You know, life is complicated and unexpected things happen. So this language acknowledges that and clarifies that we always have to place the client's interest first in all of these instances. Standard 1.04, practicing within a defined role, reads, Behavior analysts provide services only after defining and documenting their professional role with relevant parties in writing. Yep, not too much changed here. We're still expected to ensure that we're only working within a clearly defined role, and that ensures that all relevant parties really understand the scope of the activities in which we will be engaging. Okay, that leads into 1.05, practicing within scope of competence, and this standard reads, Behavior analysts practice only within their identified scope of competence. They engage in professional activities in new areas, e.g. with new populations or procedures, only after accessing and documenting appropriate study, training, supervised experience, consultation, and or co-treatment from professionals competent in the new area. Otherwise, they refer or transition services to an appropriate professional. No significant changes here, really, just a bit of additional language, including the option to co-treat. We also added in the requirement to refer if an individual cannot access the activities necessary for them to become competent such that they can provide the needed services. Okay, and related to competence, 1.06 maintaining competence reads, behavior analysts actively engage in professional development activities to maintain and further their professional competence. Professional development activities include reading relevant literature, attending conferences and conventions, participating in workshops and other training opportunities, obtaining additional coursework, receiving coaching, consultation, supervision, or mentorship, and obtaining and maintaining appropriate professional credentials. Yeah, similar to 1.05, really the changes here were about adding in more examples and clarification. Obviously, it's not an exhaustive list, Individuals need to be able to evaluate for themselves what they need to be doing to maintain competence. Um, But yeah, that's really it. Yeah. And you know, what's important for junior professionals is that they actually have a a defined plan 
for updating their competence because, you know, we can have good intentions about reading the journals, but those journals will pile up and go into conferences and you may or may not attend those. And so early on, especially when you're newly certified, um, basically your career has just started. Uh, you, you don't yet have expertise. The, the way to get there is not just time in the job, uh, is to actually have a, a defined plan to update your professional repertoires and it pays off. Yeah, I agree. I, early in my career, would chat with mentors before I would go to a conference, sort of scan the offerings and try to identify what areas I needed some additional work in. And, you know, it's interesting because some of the things that I would choose to go to, my mentors would be able to sort of say, actually, I, I think your skills are fine there. You really ought to focus more on this or go listen to this person speak. So I think that your point is well made that we need to be purposeful in continuing to address specific strategies for how we add to our repertoires. I agree with your sentiment about journal articles as well. And so one thing that I did was I had a monthly journal reading group with some colleagues. That's great. And it's also good taking ownership uh, of that, that need in your life. Okay, this next standard is completely new. It's standard 1.07, cultural responsiveness and diversity. And it reads, behavior analysts actively engage in professional development activities to acquire knowledge and skills related to cultural responsiveness and diversity. They evaluate their own biases and ability to address the needs of individuals with diverse needs and backgrounds, for example, age, disability, ethnicity, gender expression and identity, immigration status, marital relationship status, national origin, race, religion, sexual orientation, and socioeconomic status. Behavior analysts also evaluate biases of their supervisees and trainees, as well as their supervisees and trainees' ability to address the needs of individuals with diverse needs and backgrounds. You're right. This one is a new standalone element, and it was really informed by 1.05c of the Professional and Ethical Compliance Code for Behavior Analysts. Whereas the Professional and Ethical Compliance Code does include some language on diversity, it became pretty clear throughout the revision activities that the revised version needed to address requirements for culturally responsive practices, as well as some considerations for attending to diversity within those professional practices. The language in 1.07 makes it clear that individuals must remain consistently and actively involved in their professional development and growth activities that are geared towards increasing their knowledge and, you know, their skills related to providing culturally responsive services and serving individuals from diverse backgrounds. It's also really important to note, I think, that engaging in professional development endeavors is insufficient. Instead, really, individuals are directed to engage in self-reflection and evaluation of biases that they hold related to other individuals. The implication really is that through self-assessment and professional development, we all can become sort of uh, more developed in our professional repertoires and push those repertoires in a direction toward diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well said. And that leads us to standard 1.08, non-discrimination. And it reads, behavior analysts do not discriminate against others. They behave toward others in an equitable and inclusive manner, regardless of, and again, it's the same list here, age, disability, ethnicity, gender expression and identity, immigration status, marital relationship status, 
national origin, race, religion, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, or any other basis prescribed by law. Yeah, that's right. It's pretty similar to what we have in 1.05D of the Professional and Ethical Compliance Code. However, the list was expanded to include some other important statuses, gender expression and identity, immigration status, marital slash relationship status. So this list is just um, more inclusive than what we have in the current code. Agreed. And that brings us to standard 1.09, non-harassment, which reads, behavior analysts do not engage in behavior that is harassing or hostile toward others. Yep, pretty similar to what we have now, just the language has been broadened uh, a little bit and the word hostile has been added in there. So on to standard 1.10, awareness of personal biases and challenges. This one reads, Behavior analysts maintain awareness that their personal biases or challenges, for example, mental or physical health conditions, legal, financial, marital relationship challenges, may interfere with the effectiveness of their professional work. Behavior analysts take appropriate steps to resolve interference, ensure that their professional work is not compromised, and document all actions taken in this circumstance and the eventual outcomes. Uh, this one's related to 1.05 of our current code, right? Yeah, that's correct. Not too much changed actually here, but some additional sort of clarification and examples were added. Again, these are not exhaustive lists. Life is complicated, but it does give at least some guidance, especially for newer practitioners. Yeah, that's right. All right, uh, the next standard is 1.11, multiple relationships, uh, and it reads, because multiple relationships may result in a conflict of interest that might harm one or more parties, behavior analysts avoid entering into or creating multiple relationships, including professional, personal, and familial relationships with clients and colleagues. Behavior analysts communicate the risks of multiple relationships to relevant individuals and continually monitor for the development of multiple relationships. If multiple relationships arise, behavior analysts take appropriate steps to resolve them. When immediately resolving a multiple relationship is just not possible, behavior analysts develop appropriate safeguards to identify and avoid conflicts of interest in compliance with this code and develop a plan to eventually resolve the multiple relationship. Behavior analysts document all actions taken in this circumstance and the eventual outcomes. Yeah, that's a long one, but it's important. And there are some critical changes to note in this standard. So first of all, we included some examples to help professionals understand that there are many types of multiple relationships and potential multiple relationships. Um, the requirement to continually monitor for and address those multiple relationships when they arise remains. Just like in the language in the current code, the language here does not prohibit individuals from entering into multiple relationships. Instead, it just cautions against the multiple relationship and provides guidance for what to do when they're inevitable or when they simply arise. Another change is that the language in 1.11 directs individuals to develop safeguards against conflicts of interest and, you know, to have a plan to resolve the multiple relationship as soon as possible. The idea is that individuals should have a systematic plan for addressing multiple relationships and that they should document the steps they take and the steps that they would like to take such that they can resolve the situation at some point in the future. 
Well, speaking of multiple relationships, uh, our next element is about uh, gifts. Um, and so the standard is 1.12. Uh, it's titled Giving and Receiving Gifts. And it reads, because the exchange of gifts can invite conflicts of interest and multiple relationships, behavior analysts do not give gifts to or accept gifts from clients, stakeholders, supervisees, or trainees with a monetary value of more than $10 US or the equivalent purchasing power in another currency. Behavior analysts make clients and stakeholders aware of this requirement at the onset of the professional relationship. A gift is acceptable if it functions as an infrequent expression of gratitude and does not result in financial benefit to the recipient. Instances of giving or accepting ongoing or cumulative gifts may rise to the level of a violation of this standard if the gifts become a regularly expected source of income or value to the recipient. Well, as you can guess, this standard has been the topic of many discussions about ethics, and we received a lot of thoughts about this one on our survey. The language was significantly altered here to allow for gift exchanges, provided that they don't invite conflicts of interest. Allowing for the exchange of sort of small gifts of appreciation, that should allow practitioners some flexibility to better navigate instances where cultural practices include you know, those gift-giving behaviors and avoid instances where refusing such a gift could result in significant damage to the therapeutic relationship. That said, behavior analysts should really remain aware that gift exchanges do bring with them inherent potential conflicts. That's really the point. Therefore, they should continue to address this in training activities as well as implement antecedent type strategies like policies and procedures or well-timed reminders to caregivers and other stakeholders. And, you know, the $10 limit has sort of two purposes. The first is to limit the likelihood of financial burdens when exchanging gifts with another individual. And the second is to maximize that really the intent of the gift exchange is to communicate some sort of general appreciation as opposed to influence professional behavior in either individual. Right. And I just want to say something a little bit more about the equivalent purchasing power. So the limit here is $10 US or equivalent purchasing power. That is not a currency conversion. So you can't receive a gift up to the equivalent of $10 in another currency. That actually could be a tremendously valuable gift, depending on the relation between the currencies of the two countries. Instead, it's the purchasing power. So the way to figure this out is what would $10 buy in the U.S.? Uh, and then that's the amount of power in the other currency up to that amount. Exactly. That's a really great point. A little complicated, but really critically important. Yeah, it's not a currency conversion word problem. So uh, the next standard is 1.13, coercive and exploitative relationships. And this standard reads, Behavior analysts do not abuse their power or authority by coercing or exploiting persons over whom they have authority, for example, evaluative or supervisory authority. Yeah, pretty straightforward. Just don't abuse the power that you have over others. And I think it's also a good opportunity to articulate what that power might be in different relationships. Okay, 1.14 is titled Romantic and Sexual Relationships, and it reads, behavior analysts do not engage in romantic or sexual relationships with current clients, stakeholders, trainees, or supervisees, 
because such relationships pose a substantial risk of conflicts of interest and impaired judgment. Behavior analysts do not engage in romantic or sexual relationships with former clients or stakeholders for a minimum of two years from the date the professional relationship ended. Behavior analysts do not engage in romantic or sexual relationships with former supervisees or trainees until the parties can document that the professional relationship has ended and all the professional duties have been completed. Uh, behavior analysts do not accept as supervisees or trainees individuals with whom they have had a past romantic or sexual relationship until at least six months after the relationship has ended. Yeah, thanks for reading that one. It's pretty long and there are some notable changes. So the first thing to pay attention to is that the standard covers sexual and romantic relationships as both types or a combination can pose a concerning risk of conflict of interest and impaired judgment. We also expanded the individuals covered by the standard to include stakeholders, uh, in other words, you know, direct caregivers or other key individuals involved in service delivery. The timeline for refraining from engaging in sexual or romantic relationships with former clients or stakeholders is still a minimum of two years from the date of the professional relationship ending. And there are a few other additions to the standard, right? Yeah, there are. Um, so the standard has been modified to include prohibiting behavior analysts from engaging in sexual or romantic relationships with former supervisees or trainees until the individuals can demonstrate that the professional relationship has come to an end. Also, behavior analysts are prohibited from engaging in supervisee or training activities for individuals with whom they have had a past romantic or sexual relationship for at least six months from the end of the relationship. You know, essentially, the standard has been expanded to cover a wider range of possible relationships that are likely to result in conflicts of interests and impaired judgment. Thanks, Tyra. So that brings us to the last two standards, 1.15, responding to requests. This reads, behavior analysts make appropriate efforts to respond to requests for information from and comply with deadlines of relevant individuals, for example, clients, stakeholders, supervisees, and trainees, and entities, for example, the BACB, licensure boards, or funders. They also comply with practice requirements, for example, attestations and criminal background checks uh, that are imposed by the BACB, employers, or governmental entities. And standard 1.16, titled Self-Reporting Critical Information, it reads, behavior analysts remain knowledgeable about and comply with all self-reporting requirements of relevant entities, again, for example, the BACB, licensure boards, uh, and funders. So there's really not too much difference in these two standards in the new versions. 1.15 basically requires individuals to reply to requests for any information in a timely manner and to follow any required practice requirements. And 1.16 requires individuals to know under what conditions and to whom they have to self-report any critical information. These two standards are related to elements in the 10.0 standard, behavior analyst ethical responsibility to the BACB in the professional and ethical compliance code. So the primary change that is important for everyone to note is that the requirements no longer apply only to the BACB. 
Instead, in the revised code, the expectation is that it is the responsibility of each behavior analyst to know about the requirements that apply to them and that they're responsive and compliant to those requirements and that they self-report when necessary. So it places the burden on the individual to know about all of the relevant entities or instances in which they need to comply with or provide self-reporting. Yeah, and that kind of circles back to uh, the earlier standard where I think it's important for professionals, especially junior professionals, to conduct a surveillance scan of what all of their professional obligations are. And I think this is increasingly important as behavior analysts are more frequently finding themselves practicing in jurisdictions where their practice is regulated, uh, usually through licensure. Yeah, you're right. And I think earlier you sort of mentioned that uh, practice is more complex now than, say, 10 years ago. And there may be new organizations, entities that have requirements for uh, individuals who are practicing. Some individuals might practice in an area where they're crossing state lines and they need to know about multiple different uh, state organizations. So the idea really is it's our responsibility to be mindful and to continue to sort of be aware of the entities, organizations, requirements with which we have to comply. Well, Tyra, thanks so much for uh, the fantastic commentary on Section 1, Responsibility as a Professional of the New Ethics Code for Behavior Analysts. My pleasure. Thank you for reading the text to <laughs> all of the listeners. You know, we hope that this information proves useful for certificates, supervisors, business leaders, folks teaching ethics content, really in becoming more familiar with the Code of Ethics for Behavior Analysts. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Inside the BACB. Stay tuned for additional episodes in 2021, where we will be covering other standards of the new code. Everybody take care. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Inside the BACB. Don't miss future episodes. Subscribe now.